we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Hello, dear listener. Before we launch into this episode, uh, a few warnings or a bit of housekeeping, I guess. Uh, This is not the normal Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast, so if you're listening to us for the first time and you're trying to get a gist of what we do on this podcast, this would not be a good example. So uh, switch over to one of the other episodes if you're trying to get a gist of what we normally do. Uh, For those of you who do normally listen, in this particular case I have a a lengthy discussion with Brian Morris about his book Sacred to Secular and also looking at uh, exploring what we can do to create a lobbying effort uh, in Australia for secularism as opposed to a grassroots effort. And I recognise that that's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. Um, so, you know, it is different to what we normally do and a little bit self-indulgent at times. So um, I'm aware of that. And uh, the third thing is we did it over a Skype call and initially the Skype uh, connection wasn't that great. We disconnected and reconnected, and after the first five or ten minutes, it does improve a fair bit. So, you know, bear with that. Anyway, with all of those caveats in mind, uh, we'll uh, we'll move on with the podcast. Thanks. Welcome back, dear listener. We're up to episode ninety-six of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. A special episode this week. I have with me uh, on the line all the way from South Australia. Brian Morris, the author of Sacred to Secular. Brian, welcome aboard. Good to be with you. Nice to talk about some real issues. Yes, so I'm really looking forward to our conversation and um, we can cover any number of topics and you appear to me to be a bit of an expert on a lot of them, so we'll all learn a lot. So um, you've written a book, Sacred to Secular, and I picked up a copy a couple of years ago now. It's very well-thumbed and dog-eared, and I love it. Um, Dear listener, it explores a number of areas to do with secularism. Uh, The part I really appreciate about it is that it's aimed at Australians, so it looks at at our history of secularism and what's going on in this country, um, as well as some broader topics. But, I mean, there's lots of books around from... Sam Harris and Dawkins and, and all the others that deal with atheism, secularism and and the ideas. But Brian, your book at least is very Australian. So that's, you know, one of the key things I like about it. So well done on that score. Great. I'm glad you like it. <laughs> and uh, so what caused you, well, what's your background? What caused you to write the book? What were you hoping to achieve? Well, that'll probably all come together, uh, Trev, because... Um, you know, my background is journalism, albeit freelance journalism. I was never really ter- terribly interested in the, in the mainstream. Uh-huh. Uh, and I really kicked off with a, uh, um, a national publication that I started called Probe, which came out of a stage I was just doing a short term, just between gigs, whatever. I was r- running a, um, a consumer group. And uh, so I, I started a, a newsletter, it went really well, and it became a national publication. And this consumer group was very much left wing. So it looked at consumer issues from a left-wing perspective. It may sound like something of an oxymoron, but it you know, looked behind the whole issues of, uh, of consumerism. We broke quite a number of good stories. 
that went really well. And, uh, I, you know, from there, I just went on to media management roles with New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service when uh, mid-80s, when Bob Carr was Minister for the Environment in New South Wales. And the government was opening up national parks around northern New South Wales, Washpool, border ranges, that sort of thing. I was really handling those major projects, which was terrific, and we had some great achievements. So did you have direct dealings with Bob Carr yourself? Yeah, yeah, sure. He was uh, was in Grafton because I was tackling the media in northern New South Wales, which, of course, it was all very much hardline National Party. And, of course, the media was was very, very right-wing. So it took uh, a good 12 months to actually break them down and, uh, and good radio, TV and uh, a newspaper coverage across the whole of northern New South Wales to make people finally realise that we needed national parks. And uh, in the end, we won them over and uh, it, was a great, uh, it was a great strategy. And of course, due very much to the incredible enthusiasm of Bob Carr. Right. Okay. So you've got a good knowledge there of how government works. So... We'll talk about that yeah. a little bit later. But how did you move across into secularism as an interest from that? I finally realised that uh, there was a little bit more to getting into uh, media relations and public relations. So I started my own public relations company mm-hmm. and uh, very quickly found a, a very tight niche. It uh, had a very uh, unusual working model. So I did that for 15 years. Um, and so it was all work, 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 obviously. But it was just great background in terms of, again, media relations, public relations, and uh, how the commercial and government sector uh, worked. So it wasn't until I sold the business um, to another you know, national company in 2004. Um, my wife and I decided we'd cut, it slow down a bit <laughs> yep. and come over to sunny Adelaide and... Um, I indulged my passion then of black and white photography and playing jazz in a you know, small jazz trio in restaurants and blah, blah. Yes. Uh, and that was great just to sort of slow down, do something different. But then I thought, look, I've, I've really got to get back into this media thing somehow. Yeah, so I was really uh, looking for something more interesting to do and, and getting back to, um, I guess, my you know media roots. And uh, I've been a, a, an atheist since I was 11 and... Uh, Obviously, over that period of time, um, read scores and scores of uh, books on atheism and secular politics. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really wasn't. Um, I mean, some books just trigger something for you. And I picked up a a copy of uh, Marilyn Maddox's The Rise of the Religious Right in Australia. Here's a book about the Australian situation, um, politics and religion. I started to uh, to get involved then actively in in atheism started a group over here called uh, Atheism SA and it was really more of an active role. We'd get out there with a, a few people doing surveys just really to, if nothing more, to talk about a, an issue, um, get at least 100 people to make a comment so that I could uh, generate a media release uh, and get some local media coverage. We had one real major success. Again, maybe I, I don't want to digress too much, but one of the things that got me when I went through the uh, the South Australian Museum at one stage, when I, not long after I'd been here, couldn't find anywhere a display on human evolution. I asked around to uh, the curators and, and the scientists there and said, look, there's nothing on human evolution. What's going on here? Mm-hmm. They said, oh, look, it was taken down about five years ago for some remodeling. It's never been put back. So I said, well, 
when is it going to be put back after five <laughs> years? So I you know, started lobbying the director and got a bit of a runaround. So we launched a bit of a campaign <laughs> to get the human evolution display back again. Lots of media, got a couple of scientists on board within about two months, lovely big glass case with um, replica skulls going back to the Australopithecines and, you know, Homo erectus, Homo, Homo habilis and a few others. So at least we had our human evolution <laughs> right. back again because there were so many students that we would get, used to go through this one particular student area and they had no visual connection with our human origin. So, yeah. uh, so that was a, one. You had an early taste of success of actually getting something changed <laughs> with a bit of social... What? action well it was and it was uh, i must say it was very sweet and so look we went as far as we could go with atheism sa but as many things do it's again it's very hard to get people out on a cold night in winter and do things so i thought well okay maybe move on and do something else and i thought more about this book from marilyn maddox and thought well look okay, it's time to write something of my own. And so early in 2014, I started to do all the research and uh, wanted to do something with, with an Australian context because, as you say, there, there really wasn't very much before that. Mm. And one of the arguments I, is that a lot of them appear just too or come across as too academic. You know, they get heavily into the ontological argument and the cosmological argument, and they, and they just leave people behind. I thought, well... Using my uh, my basic journalistic skills, maybe I can produce something that uh, that reads a little bit better and doesn't blind people with science. Well, you've achieved that. It, it, I mean, it, it's authoritative but readable is probably what you're aiming for. So. <laughs> Thanks, Trevor. It's, it's good to hear you know, more corroboration that it seems to have worked. And, of course, anybody listening, they can, of course, go to our website, plainreason.org, and uh, there's free copies of the book now because I – Produced the uh, the printed version in early 2015. With these sorts of books, especially in the Australian context, change of government, um, you know, change of leader, you know, Abbott went by the board and, and Turnbull came on board. So I thought, well, it's time to refresh it. But the, the print version had gone really well, and I thought, well, it's time to get an ebook going. So people go to that website. There's a free ebook now, and so just a couple of months ago, um, I just published then this ebook. Is on Amazon as well, as I say, it's now free through our website, plainreason.org. And from there, it's going to be a lot easier just, I mean, there's so much additional stuff that I can add. I mean, how do you cover all of the issues, you know, in one hit? Um, so I've now really got the basis for what I think is, and I can just keep adding um, over the next year, additional material, take some of the old stuff out. And just republish again as a new ebook. Okay, so that's the intention is just to keep adding and updating over time as an ebook. Yep. Great. So I'll have um, a link on the show notes uh, to your website. But yes, dear listener, um, as we talk about it and uh, you're thinking well, it sounds interesting, you can um, click on a link and contact Brian and he'll send you a free copy. So how good's that? Um, so, Brian, how long did it take to write once you decided you're going to write this book to actually being finished? Well, I started from scratch in January uh, 2014, published in in May. So it was a it was a year of research, going back through scores and scores of books and articles that I've read, and pulling together, trying to pull together a, a coherent 
progression from without getting too involved in history but you know the early history of the uh, the early christian sects and, and what have you right through to the present day and mm. so yeah overall probably about 14 15 months to produce the whole thing so dear listener just running through the book to some extent for the topics you might be interested in uh there's an initial section on um, government funding of religious schools and the history of it. And, Brian, I find this to be a compelling argument when talking to people um, and trying to persuade them that the level of funding of private schools at the moment is not a good idea. I have two arguments that seem to work quite well. Is One is to say it wasn't always the case that we are spending this money on private schools. And the other one is that, you know, virtually nobody else in the world does it like we do, and we're a real outlier. But, um, but that first one where, uh, you know, the federal government wasn't giving money to private schools um, until the end of the, the Menzies era, basically, and, um, and people are quite shocked when, when they're told that. Well, they are, and, and people should be astounded and um, angry because... For the hundred years before that, I mean, it, it was Menzies. There were a handful of uh, Catholic schools which were self-funded. The hundred years before that, I mean, amazing thing in, in the mid-1800s, because of that ter- incredible conflict between Catholics and Protestants, even the churches agreed from the early days of settlement, there was such conflict between those two denominations mm. that they could see it happening in the schools and they finally came to the uh, the agreement along with the colonial governments that if we keep going down this this track we're going to be in civil war in, yes. in no time flat very much as exactly what happened in uh, in England and Europe the bloodshed there i mean hundreds of thousands of people killed in the wars between those two denominations of uh, christianity unbelievable so they agreed that from that point on Education should be free, compulsory, and secular, which was an astounding decision for them independently to come to. So we had that hundred-year period, and then, of course, it was Menzies for purely political reasons to mm. uh, to drive a wedge between the Catholics and Protestants within the Labour Party. Now, in the last sixty years, a bit more than sixty years, what we now have is. Almost 40% of schools are now private schools, 94% of which are religious. They teach 38% of the Australian school student, and they're now funded by this staggering amount of $12 billion a year. Now, it's absolutely incredible, and we've already heard from the current Liberal government that their intention is to keep rolling out the private or independent schools. Um, Yes, let's digress a little bit into just the budget passed last night and the recent announcements with with private school funding by the federal government, Brian. It it amazes me the Labor Party response over the last six months as this has been bubbling away because uh, uh, the Liberal... Education Minister Simon Birmingham has sort of been flagging he wants to reduce the overpayment to privileged elite private schools. And the current Labor Party is is making it difficult for him. And I just can't believe that a Labor Party would do that. I would have thought 
this was one thing that they could be bipartisan on and say, good idea, in fact, go even harder. It just... And I was listening to um, Philip Adams' Late Night Live talking to Laura Tingle, and she seemed to indicate that the that there's a strong Catholic right wing within the Labor Party that um, is beavering away and perhaps making the Labor Party not what you'd expect on this issue. Is it, you got any, anything to add on that or any knowledge? Well, absolutely, and it goes back to, uh, to Julia Gillard with, uh, you know, Gonski 1.0. Julia Gillard allegedly was meant to be an atheist, but she kowtowed not just to the Australian Christian lobby, but to the uh, the religious right of the Labour Party, um, making the point that, you know, no school would be worse off under Gonski. Well, four years further on, and yes. the Labour Party still can't disentangle itself from this in- incredible stupidity of these elite private schools, religious private schools, that more money to build another indoor equestrian centre for their highly privileged children. Give me a break. It's just long overdue that these people just get cut back. I mean, that $12 billion, uh, there are some private schools certainly that probably need to be uh, um, funded in the first instance. But I think the policy should be gradually to wind all this back over a period of time. It can't be done, obviously, straight away. But you can start at the top, and that $12 billion can be quickly wound back to about five or six but can before you, eventually it's wound back to yeah. nothing at all. But, but can you, Brian, explain why the Labor Party is taking this line? From what you've already said, and, and I, I corroborate the fact that um, the, the, uh, the Labor Party has a very strong and deep and vocal Catholic streak, you know, right through yeah. the middle of it. Dear listener, hold that thought in mind because a bit later on, Brian and I are going to talk about grassroots campaign versus lobbying campaign, a bit of an extension of um, the discussion I had with Hugh, and, and this issue is kind of part of that. So so hold that thought, and uh, we'll, we'll just mention a few more parts of, of the book, and then we'll go back to a bit more contemporary affairs, and we'll probably jump all over the shop here, Brian, I can tell already, but anyway... Um, the, the other thing I liked in the book that uh, that I learnt on reading it was was the embeddedness of of religion and Christianity in our society. And in the book, you list how within schools we've got special religious instruction, we've got the chaplains, and we've got the funding that we've just spoken about. Uh, we've got church charities that get a lot of government work. We've got religious think tanks. And we've got a media that um, seems to be very pro-Christian. Both News Corp seems to be quite pro-Christian. And and the ABC, uh, that's one of the key things I remember from your book, is there was about eight different religious programs on the ABC and not one program devoted to atheism or, or secularism. So that whole idea of the embeddedness of religion in our society was really enlightening and... Um, just, I know the. I got the suspicion that the ABC one is a real um, hobby horse with you, Brian. That some of the powers that be in there and the people would have been relatively, you know, not religious. And is do the religious elements actually have a grip on the halls of power within the ABC, or is there something else at play that has meant we don't get any um, better representation? 
I've got a lot I'd like to say about the media, and, and this really uh, ties up with it as well. So perhaps we can have a section that deals with all those aspects of, of media, including the Christian aspect. But you started off by saying the embeddedness. Chapter 2 in, in the book really explains exactly how all this has really happened. And it's, it's hardly unusual, is it? I mean, when you consider that in Australia, at the time of Federation, the population was uh, was 94% Christian. Well, if you think back the centuries before that, there was no other option. You you, you really couldn't be anything other than uh, a Christian. And if, mm. and if you spoke out and said anything about it, your life was very much in danger. There's a great piece that's just been written by um, that great um, online uh, church and state or magazine from England that it lists in great detail the incredible uh, power that churches have had in terms of um, censorship of, you know, it goes back to uh, Copernicus and, and Galileo and all the books that they've banned and, uh, and stepping out of line, as I say, you, you know, your life was in danger. So we've had 14 or 15 centuries of that since the Christians took over as the Church of Rome. Yes, but I think, um, the, I think the average Australian wouldn't recognise the level of embeddedness and control until it's actually pointed out to them, as you do in Chapter 2, where you start listing these things, and you go, gosh, well, that's right. It's, it's, if you don't think about it, it's easy to... For the average Joe it's, in Australia, it would be easy to think that the church is just for people who go to church on Sundays and really has no power beyond that if they're not looking at Yeah, look, I mean, it. it's just that, that whole subliminal thing is that, you know, the media has to report all the different things. The Pope has a, an encyclical or, or make some sort of comment, quite yes. bizarre comment. Just going around, I mean, street names and seeing churches and and all the different events that are, are linked very much with Christianity. It's all that subliminal embeddedness that keeps this whole thing of this illusion of this uh, Judeo-Christian history that we have. Well, it, it's not. I mean, it's only through the, the sheer brutality and power and ruthlessness of the Christian church, certainly as far as the West goes, but I mean, you know, the Islamics are, are doing a very, very good job in the, in the East. Uh, and that's another issue we can talk about. We, yep. uh, but but we're, so we're still seeing it today. And when we get onto the media, there's a, a couple of issues I'd, I'd like to talk about, exactly why some of the media still kowtows to this whole idea of, you know, we have to be respectful to religion. We have to put them on this purple pedestal. Let's launch into All it, right. Brian. I mean, we're there. Let's go. It's, yep. What they do is completely misread... The ICCPR Article 18, the uh, International Convention of Civil and Political Rights, mm -hmm. Article 18, which talks about freedom of religion, and the media it talks about the same thing. It's getting worse now, obviously, with the whole the Islamic issue um, yes. and terrorism and extremism. But the way the media misinterpret it is that they only think about because it's been uh, promulgated by the Christian churches, freedom of religion. Well, under ICCPR, the true definition is freedom of religion and belief. And it makes it quite clear that that includes non-religious and atheist belief. And atheism has entirely the, the right 
uh, as a human right to challenge religion on its foundational principles. Now, that's never talked about. I mean, we only ever hear the Christian view, freedom of religion, you can't criticize religion, it's this sort of protected species. Well, the atheist uh, and secular and rationalist community has really not done very much over the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years to challenge that whole concept. Well, I was talking with Hugh, and I believe they've got somebody coming into the rationalists who might have some experience in the UK situation. And I think the gist of a story Hugh was telling me was that at least in the UK, when they will have a panel discussion of some sort, there will be a secularist on the panel or an atheist or a noted person to give the other side of the story. But so often in our media, it seems that we don't, in Australia, we don't get a look-in on these things, which seems perhaps worse than, like even in America. I mean, you've got Bill Maher and Sam Harris and all these people who get on different shows and yep. um, and have a good crack at, at religion. Um, we, we don't have the equivalent in Australia, it seems, in our media. Well, we don't. And it was interesting, I... I picked up on, on one of your comments earlier, a, a week ago, when you were, when we were talking about these eight religious programs that the ABC run, and the latest mm. one being God Forbid. Yes. Well, I too, like you, <laughs> fired in a, a series of emails to James Carlton, the presenter, suggesting that um, on their panels there should be a, a range of secularists and atheists to discuss some of these issues. And it goes back to Remember last year, I mean, there was, a, in fact, managed to lobby a, quite a few people to get in and, and email and, uh, and complain to the ABC with their Q&A program in the middle part of, of last year mm-hmm. when they had a, um, a session on the separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. And the entire panel yes. were Christian. So, the so entire is- panel... So what's, I mean, what's going on uh, in the ABC? Is, are they actually, you know, is there a strong Christian lobby group operating there or is it that they're obsessed with a kind of identity politics that means they, they, they want to show diversity and, and the sort of secular white man voice perhaps doesn't fit in with, with that picture? You've already said it. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, the ABC. Hugh Mackay, thirty years ago, wrote a great book about tribes. You know, the way everyone sort of you know breaks up into their own particular groups of uh, of worldview and uh, attitude and thought. And the ABC is really a tribe, and it's it's very much that upper middle class bourgeois private school, which means private religious school. And so this this whole political correctness thing of we can't get into all these uh, these contentious religious issues. We need to show religious tolerance. Yes. And, and it's this misinterpretation that I was saying before about freedom of religion. They just take it to the nth degree. It's a bit like the regressive left and what's happening in America with the students in uh, in universities yes. is that they deplatform people whose views they don't agree with. Well, the ABC is a bit like that when it comes to religion. I've had a fair bit of success personally over the, over the last few years, but since the Islamic thing has got really more difficult, 
I'm talking to producers now, particularly get. I mean, it was always easy to get get on radio to do a four or five minute spiel on something or other, and I'm getting feedback from more and more producers saying, "Well, look, uh, we can't really handle that. It's a little bit too contentious." Right. Yes. This is why. Sorry to interrupt you there, but it really gets back to, and we'll come back to it later on. I mean, I just love your idea about the um, comments you were making about democracy for for realists, the whole thing that we need a national lobby group with a very strong membership or support base to be able to go into people like Michelle Guthrie, the new managing director of ABC, and saying, well, look, you know, you've got these eight religious programs. It's time that uh, that we had something that deals with secular issues. I mean, the 2016 census is going to show us quite conclusively that at least 40% of the population now is non-religious. Brian, you're aware that when the ABC um, uh, dropped off one of those eight programs and, yeah. and introduced, God forbid, that yep. a, a posse of religious leaders had a meeting with Guthrie to discuss the issue and to get assurances that if there are any further changes, they'd be notified in advance. Were you aware yeah. of that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah of course. Same old yeah. story. Say, look, this happens constantly. I mean, in politics and, and in the media. And that's why hitherto we've left it up to Atheist Foundation of Australia or the, the Rationalist Society of Australia, um, the, the two main national bodies, to do that sort of job. Well, mm. they haven't. They haven't. And, and while, the, while the RSA, uh, and good on them, I mean, people like Hugh Harris, who's on the committee of RSA, writes some great articles, which he gets published, and, and there are a couple of other people within the RSA that get, get articles published periodically. But, but there's very little penetration in electronic media, and particularly radio, which has always been the easiest way to get to 100 or 200,000 people on a good secular issue. Now... I recall in, in your program last time with Hugh saying, well, okay, but, but has it turned anyone? Well, the short answer is, and I think he gave the answer, is that we don't really know. In a lot of cases, it does. It, it'll you know, give that light bulb moment, that snap that some people really need to say, look, yeah, this is not right. This, this whole religious thing has been going on too long. Oh, I, uh, but, okay, before we – one thing. Uh, uh, let me get in two bits here, uh, Brian. One is um, I think – Given the reasoning behind why I say the ABC won't have a, a secular voice because of the fear of, of you know, insults flying and, and obvious intolerance being on the table, that when, when somebody from our movement does get a seat on a panel, they're going to need to run a very clever um, line where they are putting forth the, the secularist ideas um, strongly, but in, in either a humorous or gentle fashion rather than a, a narky, insulting fashion, if they want to get invited back again. It's going to be a clever little tightrope for uh, our, our sort of voice to use that they're going to have to, I think, um, be entertaining and... Um, and have a dig, but do it in a way that doesn't seem too insulting or intolerant. So there's my tip for whoever gets on the panel first. Um, and then just back to your next part with changing minds then, um, say, on the radio. And um, I don't know, Brian, like um, 
the people who listen to, say, AM radio, which is what we're probably talking about, like talkback radio, is that sort of the main forum for, for you yeah, with well, your yeah, radio a, lot, a lot of them, but, but, the, but the ABC predominantly, but there's a lot of, uh, a lot of good commercial stations that, um, you know, yes. that I get regular penetration with. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the audience for AM radio, for sort of talkback or ABC, I, I just, my suspicion is it's an elderly audience who are probably hardwired and set in their ways and aren't going to change their minds. You're not completely wrong, but they're, they're people that have a vote. The point is that you can't just disregard those people that you think are um, inappropriate to talk to. I mean, it's what? it's still it's still a platform, it's still a vehicle for getting uh, getting yeah. messages I'm, out. I'm, I'm saying it's but, you know not that they're but, inappropriate, but I just think the chances of changing their minds are very slim. I think I just think the person listening to an ABC talkback radio or an AM talkback radio. I have a caricature in my mind of somebody who's pretty hardwired into their views. Well, you see, you're pretty hardwired into that view, aren't you? Yeah, but I'm willing to, as I said, I'm willing to be wrong. I, I yeah, am. Well, yeah. I'm not sure I can provide yes. demonstrable evidence right now, but to say, look, you know, the audiences are made up of more than that. Yes. And it's still an audience. And the point I really make is that it's really not enough just for one or two people to be doing this. And I, mm. and I think that once it gets to a point where eventually there may be a, a national lobby organization that we get you know, a regular program within the ABC and some of the commercial stations too, then you, know, you really start to make some changes. Don't forget that the social media is, is pretty much catered for. Uh, the AFA concentrates almost exclusively on, on, on social media content, yeah? And mm. so a number of the other atheist and secular groups. But the truth is that just on 60% of the Australian public still get the majority of their news and information by mainstream electronic media or mainstream media generally, 60%. So you can't overlook it. You can't just sort of say all the audiences are, you know, a geriatrics with, you know, right-wing Christian views. I mean, that's just simply not true. Yes. And so if, if you give up there... You might as well give up across the board. I mean, you know, radio is one of the easiest uh, po points to penetrate, mm. and uh, and we should be trying um, with a much more uh, sophisticated and organised way to get that through. Hey, and hey, just let me pick up. Just yeah. let me pick up on that other point that you made. Uh, you know, we don't have to go cap in hand and dealing with with these issues. It may sound at the moment that I'm a bit sort of on fire and uh, I can sort of let go a bit. Um, you know, talking to you on uh, on Iron Fist, yep. but I have to say, and people can listen to some of my radio interviews, is that one does um, adopt a certain amount of decorum naturally, and uh, and that's the right way to do it. And um, you yeah. know, we just got to still keep doing that. I'm prepared to um, I'm prepared to see the value in in the radio interviews, even if I'm correct about not changing minds, at least I think it helps build a profile for our speakers who then might get invited onto bigger platforms and who might get invited that's, onto other things. So That's right. So that's I, the way. So I'm happy, it, I'm happy for, you know, to, um, to promote and, and pursue that path for secular spokespeople, if only for that reason, I think, you know, so... Um, 
So it doesn't mean I dismiss it entirely. There we go. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Nor should nor yeah. should it. But I mean, but that's this is this is really the first step. And, and I can't think of any other secular groups that actually gets onto these radio programs. I mean, mm. I, there's uh, less and less in in recent times, simply because the point the the reasons I've pointed out. Mm. But uh, but more people should be doing it because what really happens is after, and I've been in, encouraging Hugh to approach uh, presenters and producers, particularly the ABC in all states when he gets a good op-ed up you know drop it down into a very simple media release and get it off to these people i mean one of the difficult things for us many organizations is keeping an up-to-date list of uh, of, the, of all the media people well i, I yes. subscribe to uh, margaret g's media guide and uh, being a former journalist you know i'm yep. it's not difficult for me to to get these media lists together and and, and keep them current but i can see and that's why I've, in the appendix of the book, I really encourage some of the atheist and secular and skeptical and skeptics groups to to get some uh, some freelance pro bono journalistic assistance to yes. get them on the road to um, making a, a better fist of penetrating the media and particularly the particularly radio. Uh, do you um, approach? Do you get face-to-face meetings with uh, with radio producers and announcers at all, Brian? Certainly here locally, but I mean you can yes. still do it by phone. I mean I, yes. I still phone up, particularly the main producers of the main programs in, yes. in other states. If you've ever got a media story come up with a Christian viewpoint and you want an opposing viewpoint. Here's my name and number. Yep, and, and, and a few and a few people phone me. Yep, and and you. But just back to the face to face ones. You you have that with the people in South Australia want, from time to time. Yeah, with locally we do, of course. And, and they're yeah. and they're sort of open to that. If you contact, if, if say in Brisbane, if Hugh or I was to contact them and say, you know, we have any, you know, an interest and a knowledge and an ability to speak in this area, we just want to meet with you, so you can you know, face-to-face, and then as things come up over the course of a year, you might be inclined to contact us. Are, are they open to that sort of approach? And making the point, too, that, uh, you know, I'd like to get periodic uh, media releases into you, and they'll be more than agreeable to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, there we go. Uh-huh. That's, and I think, you know, and again, once once you've done it a couple of times and established some credibility, it, it certainly yeah. makes it a lot easier to uh, keep going with that. And that's why I'm encur- I can encourage more and more people to do it. Well, Hugh, if you're listening, that's on our to-do list, mate. We've got to uh, – because I, I um, in my private – you know, well, in my business life, I'm a salesperson, um, Brian, um, in the art supplies world. And, you know, there's no substitute for just knocking on a door and walking in and having a face-to-face. So That's um, yeah. absolutely right. And that's where it gets back to the point you were making about the grassroots organisations. Um Maybe that may be good enough, but it's not really worked terribly well in the past. We need something a bit bigger now. If you've got, you know, a fairly good identity, yes, um, you know, atheist or secularist that has certain credibility and a profile, it makes it so much easier to get in and talk to the Michelle Guthrie's of the world, and and to get in and talk to federal ministers and state ministers um, with a couple of good people to uh, to back him or her up. You start then to actually penetrate with ideas and success rather than just chipping around at the edges. Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? 
I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Let's digress a little bit into into lobbying and how government works because, um, again, looking at uh, what the government has been saying in relation to funding of private schools and they're, and they're finally going to reduce some of the payments to these elite schools. Now, there's been no, I don't think, recognition of a grassroots movement that has caused this policy change. I mean... If Tony Abbott was still leader, this policy would not be on the table. But it just so happens that Malcolm Turnbull is, and he's a personal friend of Gonski, and um, uh, and it, it seems to me that it's that decision of the leader that is actually going to change the policy rather than the leader looking down on, you know, a groundswell of, of change of opinion and being forced to, to do something. It, it just seems to me that it starts at the top and their own personal preferences and uh, it'll all get justified and rationalised later. So you, you know, working with Bob Carr and, um, and your observation of government, how much attention do they pay to... Letters to the editor, talkback radio, grassroots movements, um, or if it's just not their cup of tea, they just ignore it anyway. What's your view? That's all grist to the mill, and and people should be doing that because it puts icing on the cake. But, you know, let's be honest. I mean, the way to any action is this very point of face-to-face contact with the relevant minister or, or, or the prime minister to push the barrow. But as long as it is backed up, by a grassroots movement. And this is why the Australian Christian lobby get away with it all the time. Lyle Shelton, because of this perpetual media coverage, he's established his profile. He's most of the time fictitiously using all the uh, the Christian churches as his grassroots support, most of which deny that because they don't want the Australian Christian lobby voicing anything on their behalf anyway. But they get away with it. And we should be adopting the same MO. I mean, if all the uh, if all if all the the atheist, secular, rationalists, the skeptic groups were to provide uh, a national support to a, a small independent fighting group, you know, led by this sort of figurehead and and a couple of good people on a lobby team, then we'd start to see some progress. And then as long as it's been backed up, we encourage more and more people to write letters to the editor, to get onto the radio programs, to continue, Hugh and, and the others and, and myself, to keep writing the opinion pieces. All that together will start to coalesce and, and provide uh, an impetus for, for ministers to listen and say, this crowd, backed up, of course, by you know, the latest results in the 2016 Census, which yep. we should be marketing to the hilt that we're almost on a, uh, a 50-50 par with the religious groups. So why are they getting all the action? Why are they getting the kid glove treatment and we're getting nothing? Time for things to change. 
And so, so, if we take that sort of approach, eventually it will. So an effective lobbyist or a lobbying action, is that, do we need you know, somebody full-time in Canberra walking the halls and going to breakfasts and lunches and dinners and in the ear of these people? Is, is that what lobbyists, professional lobbyists do for... Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And that's, and that's what we sh- should be aiming at. Initially, obviously, that's going to be difficult. Funding is the problem. But once mm. you get this, this figurehead and this, uh, probably a bad term, but I, I still mm. use it, for, you know, some, 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 a person with an identity. I mean, like mm. a, Lyle, a Lyle Shelton only yes. <laughs> yes. with, with a, a secular credentials. One of the things they'll be doing is uh, lobbying also the, uh, not just the ABC and, and politicians, but lobbying also the science community yes. to get more and more people like uh, the Australian versions of Lawrence Krauss behind uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the policies that affect science. They should also be getting on to uh, some of the well-heeled atheists that we know. People like Tim Minchin and you know David Marr, Andrew Denton, John Doyle, uh, Robin Williams, people with a, a good profile um, and probably with a few bucks, and say, well, it's time you've got to kick the can, and we can uh, we can develop a fundraising strategy that will finally allow us to have somebody permanently in Canberra. Yes, yep, that would be the thing, wouldn't? It would be to work out what is it going to cost to put somebody in Canberra and then get the money to do it. I mean, when you approach people and say, well, we want some money from you, they're going to say, well, what are you going to do with it? So I guess uh, if lobbying is the answer, we need a, a, a plan to say, well, we need a minimum of X amount where we can do this. And if we can get more than that, then we can do this. And... Um, yeah. a budget sure. of some sort, I would have thought. Is, has anybody in the secular world got any money, you know, in, in any of these groups that are out there? Of course. And um, so you've only got to look at the balance sheets of, uh, of, of a couple of the organisations that I've mentioned. Right. They are not insubstantial. And if you organise a, a proper fundraising campaign, they'd obviously be at the head of the list, but also, you know, some of the... The well-known people that I've just mentioned are not without substantial funds. Yes. So to kick it off, I'd say you, you were looking at a target initially of $100,000 to, uh, to build up a pool. Yeah, well, I was saying, okay, well, um, that would be a good figure to start, not to, to do everything you want, but if you're building a strategy, and I, I must admit, I've, I've only you know, put down a couple of bullet points, wouldn't take very long at all to come up with a strategy to cost it what the rollout would be, and it would be somebody to to start this lobbying movement. First of all, finding the uh, some sort of identity to to take it on. And mm. It'd be great if it was somebody with uh, some political background. And uh, and we do know there are, you know, quite a number of atheists within uh, Parliament and ex parliamentarians. The first task would be that that, that fundraising, and then uh, draw up a strategy of. Of going in and uh, and talking to, uh, as I say, the science community, the ABC, Michelle Guthrie, uh, and working out at least one or two campaigns that we'd want to talk about that need to approach either the minister or the prime minister federally on a couple of key policies. I mean, say for example, how hard would it be to get a meeting with the federal education minister? What what does it take? Take somebody with uh, some credibility and identity. Otherwise, yeah. 
one of those people already with a name and the backing of, a, of an organization. And then that's already yes. demonstrated. I mean, that, that would yes. be really hard to do in terms of, you know, launching the entity uh, in the media and maintaining a good then media presence to then gain access to uh, the corridors of, uh, of Canberra. So is there any existing organisation like the Rationalists or someone like that who's, who's big enough and, and wealthy enough or you know, influential enough to say, well, this is a good organisation rather than reinventing the wheel, let's just build this particular organisation up as being that one that, we're, that our spokesperson is going to represent and, and, and or do we need a new one? I mean... It, has there been an attempt to have a overall, you know, instead of the, you know, instead of the ACL, um, uh, instead of the Australian Christian Lobby, the there is an Australian Secular Lobby. Is that right, or a group like that? Well, I think there was, and I, yeah. I think that was their their original um, brief. But uh, look, I I think they still run a, a Facebook page, but there's really no there's. But there's really nobody uh, that, that I'm aware of, anyway. Um, my apologies if I'm denigrating the uh, the organisation that maybe there is, but nothing that I've heard about. Um, and we've got to we've got to you know we've got to look at the track record of the AFA, the Atheist Foundation of Australia. Yes. Uh, what really have they done over the last fifteen? They really got the personnel to. To, to do what we're really talking about. I mean, I think it's great what they do do. And, um, you know, again, another a global atheist conference, um, you know, coming up in, in February of, of, uh, of next year. Um, for me, that is also a questionable activity um, yes. and, and where to place money for a number of different reasons. But, um, you know, I don't want to denigrate it, but I, I, I think there's, there's, there's better, better ways of spending a lot of money. But um, and and the Rationalist Society, I think you know Meredith Doig, who uh, who heads up uh, president of uh, RSA, yes. does a fantastic job, and uh, a lot of people within the organisation. But I think they've got their own agenda. Uh, well, I, I know they have their own agenda. I mean, there are a number of things that they want to pursue, and a lot of it is done with a, with a very much a, a Victorian base because that's where it, that's really the, where they are based. Right. Um, so, so with all the best will in the world, uh, unless you know Meredith or, or or Carly Sturgis from the AFA could could really come up with something that said, well, okay, we'd like to we'd like to fill this this void because it it is a void and and and. And all the points that you're raising uh, in, that, in your last program with Hugh about why the grassroots organisations aren't really aren't really working um, for yes. the for the reason that I also mentioned is that we completely ne neglected the media, um, which is an important part, and we don't have that sort of that celebrity, that figurehead, that um, that sort of structure, that the ACL sort of structure that that does work so well for the Christian lobby. We can duplicate that, but it would take a little bit of time, it would take a little bit of effort, and it would take uh, some hard work. So, so would someone like the Australian atheists cooperate with the rationalists, you know, and would the humanists cooperate? And This is the perennial problem, isn't it? And I think we've already talked about this, this whole thing about cooperation between groups. I've always seen it as, unfortunately, the tyranny of small differences.
we're all yes. atheists or secularists, but they're afraid of losing their own identity. They want to do their own thing. And so it really gets this whole thing of it really causes this whole herding cats syndrome. It's very hard to get all the groups to cooperate on anything. It happens rarely. I mean, it happened very well, for instance, with the campaign for the 2016 census. Yes. I actually organized a media professional to help the AFA with that campaign, and she did a fantastic job of generating a whole lot of media. And the advertising campaign, you know, Sydney Atheists, they back the whole thing um, with, with you know money and manpower and, and the whole deal. So those sorts of issues, you can bring people together. But the, th- the sorts of things that we're talking about, ongoing with the raft of atheist and secular issues that really need to be brought to the attention of, of the parliamentarians and the national media, needs a sort of uh, organization set up that we're really talking about, which is the same MO as ACL. The whole idea of, of a national entity, it's really a small, very small action group, which is really uh, headed up by somebody who, who has a, a good national profile. Right. And it would be uh, he or she and, and a small team that would be doing the fundraising for some of the high-profile people that I've mentioned that can actually get a fund together. There's lots of ways of doing that. You're, you're a salesman. wouldn't be hard to, to figure out some of the ways to do that. But all it really needs from the other organizations around the country is really to just pledge support. Right. I mean, that's all they have to do. Right. We're not, not asking for manpower. They haven't, don't have to get out on the streets. They're not you know, kicking any money. Uh, obviously, they can if they want to. I mean, that would yeah. be fantastic. But all they have to do is pledge their support so that this sort of this action group uh, with a, a, a figurehead, if you will, can quite realistically and quite uh, legitimately claim when speaking with the media and, and, uh, and politicians that they broad national support. Right. So an action group that would would vote, a, you know, one or two people to to try and build them up as as the as a possible figurehead for the movement that could then lobby effectively in the halls of parliament. That's right. Yes. So well there's a plan, secular world of Australia. <laughs> the reason I say this, the point they're starting so far back behind the eight ball. You know, we talked earlier on about the embedded Christianity. The advantage that the Christian movements have, ACL and and all the Christian think tanks, I mean, there are, you know, there are a dozen of them that are promoting Christianity and and evangelism, even even more, uh, yes. more public schools and uh, all the rest. So we're starting behind the eight ball. So, so unless Meredith, the RSA, really has that evident determination to to take it on. It, it sounds like a big job, and it is. Then it would be just as easy to to find a figurehead figure. I mean, somebody like a David Marr would be great, you know, yes. or an Andrew Denton. I mean, he's setting up the voluntary euthanasia campaign at the moment. He's doing a very good job of it. So it yes. needs somebody like that that can draw, you know, a couple of really credible people Yes. In there as well, some people from the RSA and a couple of people from the AFB, and you yourself. I mean, 
you're a, you're a salesman, you're, you get involved too. But it only needs a small group and the cooperation of all the non-religious groups all the way across the, the spectrum. I mean, it's, the spectrum is so wide. And to demonstrate this mass support that they would have. And then it's really the small group is really um, approaching personally you know, some of the you know, celebrity people that have got a bit of cash to, to, uh, to kick in some cash and, and fund the thing and start to you know, approach you know, the ABC just to, so that the different groups can start to um, get better access to yes. uh, on panels like Q and A and uh, and different radio programs. Yes. So the first step would be would be to get some spokesperson or persons to a level where they're getting some traction. That would be sufficient that then the secular community could be convinced this person is worth supporting. Uh, uh, you know, with a with a lobbying effort. Yeah, well, that's right, and and, uh, and and with the with their then their support, yeah, I don't know. What's what's the figure? I mean, what's what's how many how many people Australia wide support the uh, the whole concept of uh, all these different um, secular policies? Uh, yes. You know, stopping uh, religious educa- education in schools, voluntary euthanasia, taking chaplains out of schools. I mean, the list is endless. I mean, how many people would support policies like that? You would think lots. So, so in your efforts to get on radio and and build your profile, Brian. I mean, you've written a great book. You're you're on radio programs. What cooperation would you like to get that you haven't been getting? Only the fact of it needs it needs other groups to to get some a, a bit of media expertise to, and I'm quite happy to to share with everyone uh, all the. Um, all the media contacts. Yes, uh, and it's very easy to um, it's really easy to set up a, a, a an email merge system where you you yes. know you, you prepare one email and I'm quite happy to yes. uh, to, to rewrite stuff for people. Yes. Um, people set up their own email merge program with you know a list of two or three hundred media contacts Australia wide, yes. uh, and they can just you know hit the button and in uh, you know thirty seconds. You know, they've sent the media release to 300 people. Yes. Um, and media in, in the releases media. still work, Brian? Well, they do because that's the entree first of all and is then that requires to follow up with a handful of them to phone producers and say, did you get the release? And you're not phoning the same ones all the time, but the next release you're, you're phoning an ex, uh, another, you know, half dozen or, or, or ten. Yes. And, and over a period of time you start to build up um, some some credibility of being able to put in your good issues, uh, you know, written well, that they'll give you time to to talk about them on air. They're always looking for four or five minute fillers here and there. So very good. So Brian, uh, we're coming up to almost an hour. What what else did you want to? Was there anything else? I mean, you've often been limited to four or five minute sort of radio <laughs> things, and and you no doubt wanted to get lost off your chest. Is there well, anything else well, in particular? Yeah, so many. I'm sorry, I've just been sort of gabbling on. It's very nice to uh, to get a free run, but I'm probably a lot more restrained, certainly a lot more focused when it's a four or five minute interview. I must admit and apologize. I've probably been a bit all over the place with a lot of this stuff no. I've been talking about, but I'm very passionate about it. Yeah, no. Getting back to the groups, the various humanist, uh, rationalist, atheist groups, do you yourself have 
personal relationships with the leaders in those groups, Brian, if you had contacts with them? A lot, but I guess one of the things that gets me is there probably aren't too many people that see, see the way things that I do. I look at this from a broad media and public relations strategy in terms of getting the secular voice, secular and atheist voice heard because most of the other groups don't have the sort of media background that I've had. They don't really see it in quite the same terms. So a lot of them are quite happy to say, well, look, we're doing, we're doing it our way, you know, for the last 10, 15, 20 years. Let's just, we'll just keep on doing it our way. And yes. I, I probably tend to get a little bit frustrated with that approach. And so with a couple of groups in the past, probably my frustration has, has boiled over a little bit. And so I found, well, look, if I can't get this or that group to move forward and actually do something, get active and not just be having meetings behind closed doors and talking to the same old people on social media and really getting nowhere, I thought, well, the only thing I can do is really start plain reason. It takes things forward a little bit. But I can see there's a whole lot more that can be done. I'm certainly not the person to do it individually. But it does need some sort of figurehead, somebody with a, a national name and, uh, and take it forward. That would really make all the difference. Yes. Yeah. Well, Brian, I think the takeaway from all that is... Just one more thing. Yeah, go, oh, go ahead, yep. Well, it really comes down to a specific issue. I thought it was time to draw attention to one of the themes in Marilyn Maddox's uh, other book, 2014 book, which was Taking God to School, where she uh, talks in Chapter 4 about literally hundreds of private religious schools which still teach creationism and intelligent design alongside the national curriculum. And so I picked that one up and thought, well, you know, time to run with that one again. And uh, so I started the petition with change all. So again, I, I would have thought there would have been a lot more support from all the secular, atheist, humanist, non-religious groups so far, even with getting Lawrence Krauss on board and uh, signing the petition and giving it its support uh, and using his three-minute video at the head of the petition where he says quite clearly that teaching children creationism is nothing short of intellectual child abuse, which of course it is. It stunts the mind, it stops kids thinking critically, and it gets them onto this, this track of a lifetime of, of Christianity, which is so hard to break. The old Jesuit saying, give me the child until he is seven, I'll give you the man. And we've, we've all talked to religious people who've been brought up on a, a solid dose of evangelism since the year dot, and you can't move them with evidence, and it's a waste of time trying, and it really takes some sort of spark along the way they finally see the light but of course most don't but it was really a vehicle to generate some media so the same thing with these issues that I raise periodically it's really only to, to generate some media coverage and so it was the same with the petition I was really hoping to get a petition up to about three or four thousand which would have been enough leading down into um, into science week in mid-August, yes. enough to, to generate some good media coverage. Just not getting enough support at the moment. There'll be a link on the show notes for anybody to sign that petition. And it was mentioned on the Facebook page for Iron Fist Velvet Glove, and a few people commented and, and signed up. Because I actually That's got great. a little note to say that 
as a result of you, you know, X number of people signed the petition. Like, you do get that feedback from that change.org to tell you if you've successfully, if people have gone through via a link that you've created. So that was interesting. Yeah, sure. But let's be honest, I mean, the Global Atheist Convention will turn out close to 3,000 people. Where are those people for a start? So, so Brian, the takeaway from all this, I think, is, is the need to get some spokespersons or person to a level where they've got a reasonable profile, which will then not only appeal to a grassroots movement, but get them in the halls of power and get them in meetings with ministers. And for that, the people who are willing to give it a go, um, the likes of you and me and Hugh and Meredith and others, need to closely cooperate and swap ideas and information as much as possible to help each other out. So, Or just to provide that support. But back to the, the figurehead, we really need somebody who's with a profile. For instance, um, Peter Fitzsimmons, again, pretty well-known Sydney Morning Herald journalist heading up the, uh, the new Republican movement. That's what I'm talking about. Yes. So that's, that's yes. why it needs an Andrew Denton or a John Doyle or Robin Williams to yes. actually tick that figurehead position that can draw in a couple of solid people around him or her. And that's really all that's required to start. Uh, and just that um, support from other groups that this is a good idea. I guess they've got to be prepared to have a bit of a lifestyle change, though, to take on this issue as a key part of their life, which to take on a whole new hat and dedicate a significant portion of their life to it is that's not easy. Nothing's easy, is it, Ryan? No, not just saying you know, devote your life to it first up. No, I mean, that's, I don't think it's a good idea to be throwing hurdles up all the way. It's, again, with Peter and Simons, he doesn't devote his whole life to it. Yes. It's amongst all the other things that he does, as well That's as true. being um, a Sydney Morning Herald journalist. So, so we're not asking somebody to, uh, to take it on 24-7. Yes, that's true. It's something, it's something you start off with maybe, you know, contributing a handful of hours a week just to sort of get the thing on the road and get it working and talking to a few people to establish some funds, first of all, and gradually build from there. I mean... Uh, it's not difficult to it's not difficult to write a uh, a, 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 a public relations or campaign strategy mm. about how the thing would work. And it's it's you know it's it's done in in small increments. You do it through several stages. You don't go immediately to st- stage ten in the first five days. You know, there's a there's a certain amount of knowledge that's required, Brian. Without it, you can easily be tripped up. I know I saw an interview with um, a Ferris spokesperson and one of the, you know, evangelical guys over um, the special religious instruction in New South Wales, and and the Ferris person just wasn't completely, uh, you know, in control of their brief and and was run around by. Uh, the evangelical on some morning show, and it was it was difficult to watch. So, if somebody's going to speak on behalf of the movement, there's lots of stuff to know. That somebody who's sort of a celebrity with a passing interest, a fair bit of time knowing if they're not going to get tripped up by uh, the opposing argument. 
there'll be a raft of well-known people that have been closet atheists for years. Yes. That would be well, well aware of what the issues are. Right. I mean, just yes. in the case of um, of identifying uh, identifying some of them. But the first mm. thing really is to say, well, look. I mean, it was you that raised the issue. I'm just picking mm. up on on what you <laughs> on what you started with mm. you uh, Harris and making the point that uh, we're wasting our time with grassroots campaigns. I, I don't entirely say. I, I think that I'd like to see more grassroots more media okay and as I say there's a section at the end of the book that talks about that but I don't think anybody really has picked up on that so I'd like to see that happen and it would continue I mean it's not as if we're trying to wipe out the grassroots organizations that's not so Mm. it's really finding someone who can who can take it to the next level and and adopt the same modus operandi that ACL uh, and that's really all I'm saying it's not going to happen overnight, but um, if it can't happen with Australian atheists and secularists, then doing. Oh, Brian thought in all that, and uh, you know, on all you know. Don't get me wrong. On these ideas, I'm just sort of, uh, I'm just trying to get to uh, the most efficient use of resources and the the best way for a small, powerless group. Well. A large but powerless group to to gather its resources and be as effective as possible. So, uh, so yeah. So okay. I'm just querying. I, I guess what you've been suggesting in this last part is is somebody with some existing celebrity of some sort who who adopts the secular movement in some way. Now, you've got to start off with somebody, somebody who already has a profile and right. uh, is already understands the atheist and secular arguments. And it's not difficult from there. And it's the most efficient way of establishing a huge organization. You're talking about establishing a group of probably only four or five people with input from those that want to, just a, a limited number of people from AFA, RSA, you know, myself, you anyone who's interested just to create that dialogue and give that group of four or five people a clear feeling of support and that nationally there will be um, broad mass support once the whole thing is uh, finally takes off yes and to attack it stage by stage little steps the other groups just go on doing their own thing, hopefully getting more uh, involved in media and, and, and other bits and pieces, getting out there in the public and, and mixing with the public and carrying the word out that way as well, and, uh, and supporting this, this new nucleus of a national action group. And that's all it is. Yes. That will eventually have the, uh, the wherewithal uh, and a bit of funding, have the credibility then to go and, and talk to... Michelle Guthrie from the ABE and talk to ministers and blah, 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 and we gradually build on it from there. So the first step then, to be sounding out somebody with an existing profile, to, to say to somebody like Andrew Denton, okay, Andrew, you've, you've taken on this project with Voluntary Euthanasia. Who amongst your friends or any, who do you know in the celebrity world who might be prepared to take on as uh, this sort of role that we're looking for t- to some extent. Is that what we've got to do? We've got to find somebody. Yeah, right? absolutely, yep. and, and and have a dialogue with the RSA and the AFA mm. and the atheists, progressive atheists in, 
in Melbourne, humanists, the, the skeptics, and if they can provide any input, and gradually, um, if somebody wants to take on a coordinating role first up, just to to say if we if we can identify a small number of people to first of all just approach and uh, look the old story: you don't ask, you don't get. Yes, that's true. I mean, that's always that's always been my philosophy in uh, in public relations and media. If you just sit back and imagine it's going to happen, it won't happen. Yes, you go ask people, and yeah. and, I, and I've found over a period of years that people are actually quite chuffed when they get asked to take on a, a serious role. They may refuse, but they're chuffed to be asked in, in the majority of cases. So if you're talking of a celebrity atheist, you know, somebody like yeah. a David Marr or a, you know, a Robin Williams, they would not be insulted by that. They would not be insulted. And, and, but once you make uh, that contact, they say, well, I'm not, I'm not the person, but you try talking to so-and-so and so it's that networking thing if you start off yes. with half a dozen people you will work through with people like Peter Fitzsimons and uh, and all those sorts of people that say well have you tried so-and-so and and, uh, and you keep trying until somebody says yeah hey that sounds like a great idea I mean all these issues um, yes. need to be taken on and we need to we need to do it nationally well we need to work out a little brief of what we would like from our celebrity and then uh, approach people like the ones who we know are you know that way inclined, and say, "Are you or like-minded celebrity friends who, amongst your group, might like to take this job on?" and and see what see what names crop up. Yeah, indeed, I'm quite happy to send you uh, just a, an initial broad strategy how it could work from my uh, 15 years in. Running a public relations company, I think. Yes. Uh, well, that sounds like a plan, Brian. I reckon. I reckon we've done enough for one podcast, and uh, I suspect we'll be back together on a podcast in the future and um, carry on from this. So, uh, I'll be in contact with you, Brian. I'll talk to Hugh, and 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 I'll also listen back and on Lewis and sort of think about what you've said, and um, and yeah, see what we can come up with over the next twelve months to sort of. Move my move the lobbying idea along a little bit, so um, you know we've got to do something. So good on you, Brian. Thanks for for spending the time, and and we'll be in touch. Well, thanks, uh, Trevor. It's been most enjoyable. I uh, hope we haven't bored the pants off people, and uh, maybe <laughs> given people a few ideas. Yeah, hopefully that. Yeah, that's all we can ask. So um, good on you, Brian. Thanks very much. Thanks again. Bye bye. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon 
and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.